Many organizations can get analytics wrong, and we're trying to help organizations get it right. We're drowning in data and starving for insights. And our goal and need is to simplify the data, to drive insights. And in our case, it's using analytics and technology and, of course, industry expertise. Hey, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where we talk about the business of sports. And we do that on a weekly basis uh, with um, our trusty producers who are with us today, Ben and Taylor, but most importantly, my co-host, Joe Fabrito. Welcome, Joe. Tom, my head is hurting with NFTs and SPACs Clubhouse and all the other. By the way, uh, we're well, you've been obsessed SPACs. with SPACs. I know you, you I and listen, I both been obsessed I to with the, SPACs. I listened to the SPAC conversation yesterday with Sportico, and I left. Other than the Dominican Sue, I left more confused than I've ever been in my life. So <laughs> we're really, really pleased to have one of the great executives and inspirations in, in the sports business. Uh, most of you know her by her leadership at one of the most prestigious organizations in the world of sports analytics and by her role as the co-founder and co-chair of the very conference we were just talking about, and that would be the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. And one other thing that I know to getting ready for the show, Joe, this is the 15th anniversary of mm-hmm. that conference, which is quite amazing. So our guest, Jessica Gelman, was a visionary starting an analytics-oriented sports thing 15 years ago, so we'll get into that a little bit. But her day job is perhaps even more impressive, and that is um, working as the CEO of the Kraft Analytics Group, which is a well-known entity in the world of sports that's really leading the way in some of the most important facets of the sports industry right now. So welcome, Jessica. It's, it's a real pleasure to have you. So Jessica, I want to start with this question, and I know Joe has a lot of questions. There's a bunch of topics we want to cover because there's so much going on as, uh, as we often say in these podcasts, but it's, you have a particularly fascinating perspective with your role as an executive in the analytics space, but also as an organizer of the leading, one of the leading and most popular conference and conferences in the industry. But you said something in your message from the CEO on, on, your, on the Kraft Analytics Group website that really struck me as being quite provocative. You said your biggest challenge as a player you, you were a college basketball player at Harvard, was quieting, quieting the noise. You kind of told your story in that message. And then you tied that back to where you are now leading the charge in analytics and sports data consulting and things like that, um, saying that the quieting the noise was actually something that the industry needed to address so we could prioritize running our business better. So let's start from there. Uh, sure. It's a really interesting way to connect a mid-90s thought to a 2021 issue in, in our world? Well, I'll start by just saying, first of all, thank you guys for having me. Uh, this is really fun. I have become a huge fan of, of this podcast and I'm learning a ton from it. So honored to be part of this. Thank you. But I, I, I want to I start by just saying when I think I like to draw parallels in life and I think people are generally consistent. And as when I was a, a college athlete, uh, I wasn't like the, the fastest or even the most talented, but I, so I had to get 
I, ne I needed to be stronger in other areas. So one was knowledge of the game, but two was like the mental side of the game. And that's where the quieting the noise and translating that to today, obviously some of that came from Nate Silver and his book, um, Signal in the Noise. And this concept of, and it's what's most interesting, even since Kager was originally founded five years ago or almost five years ago, is how much more data is available today and how much it's actually accelerated during the pandemic because of the changing behaviors of customers and because of what has been what will be happening and is starting to happen. Obviously, as fans are coming back to games and we need the safety, uh, much more mobile ticketing, we an acceleration by two or three years, uh, cashless payment, and just uh, the fact that we're gonna be able to connect that directly to customers for the first time. And it's, it's we'll talk a lot about or what, where we focus on as a company is this concept of many organizations can get analytics wrong and we're trying to help organizations get it right. And this concept of we're drowning in data and starving for insights. And our goal and need is to simplify the data to drive insights. And in our case, it's using analytics and technology and of course, industry expertise. And so the background of, of that is that there just is so much information and people often spend time looking at the wrong data or they don't know how to apply that data to drive their business, to understand their customers. And again, our focus, and again, coming from a long period of time uh, working in various functions within, the, within craft sports and entertainment is really around the customer and their experience at an event, whether it's a sporting event or a concert or whatever it might be. So I can share a little bit about what Kager does if that's helpful, because I think so. That was my next question. So actually, oh. to think about what Kager does and how the origin came about, and also if you sure. could pick up that going back to the Sloan Conference, how that idea came about. Those two kind of origin stories, I think, are pretty unique. Yeah. Um, okay. I guess I'll, I'll start in order. Since the Sloan Conference, I guess, was technically first, although it was very much formed by the experiences that I was having in, in, my, in my day job. So uh, Daryl Morey, who is the co-founder with me. He and I are great friends. He was actually the officiant at my wedding. Um, and we, but before that, that was after we founded the Sloan Conference. Um, but uh, he and I were teaching a class at Sloan on sports analytics. And he was, he was focused on the team side. And, I, and by that, I mean the athlete uh, product on the field side. And I was focused on the business side in that class. And I'll, I will never forget, he got, he got a call and was like really agitated one night after class and told me that this thing was potentially happening in Houston, which was really exciting. And we started talking about it and I was like, this is gonna happen for you. And of course it did, which was amazing. And then we were trying to think about how could we take these great lessons that we were bringing to a small group. So not too dissimilar from the Tom and Joe show uh, and, and continue with bringing analytics and the use of analytics to sports. And so it was actually after the women's final four, which was in Boston in I think 2006 or seven, he and I were just talking about it, uh, about how we were gonna do the, the class while he was in Houston and we landed on turning it into a conference. And we had did not think that 
it would turn into what it's become. It was really a way for us to stay connected to the school, to create a forum, to increase the discussion around analytics. But it was one of those amazing organic compounding elements. And we were so fortunate by the students who drove so much of the innovation. And also like Daryl and I were accelerating kind of in our careers at the same time too. And we got, we had great support from MIT and it was, as Daryl will say, he's like, there was this like bottle that was about to explode. And we, we were fortunate to be part of kind of creating uh, some of the underpinnings of making people aware and then bringing people together. So last year actually was um, on par with the size of the pan of the conferences that we've had in the past. But what I think makes the conference so dynamic is really two things. First and foremost, we have a lot of panels and speaking engagements and other things that are going on at once. And that makes it very dynamic. And then the second part is that we film everything and we put it up so it's available for people to, for professors really to use in classrooms or for students to watch or really anyone in the industry to learn. And we want to make it educational in nature and that, that's a big part of, of what, we, what we've done. So it's a really great ecosystem. So that's kind of Sloan. And you know, I wanna thank all the students over the years who have been part of it. And this year in particular, I mean, it's been really challenging. We basically are restarting what the conference is in this virtual world and we're looking forward and we've planned something great for April 8th and 9th. And, you know, big kudos to Maggie Riddle and Lindsay Solitar, who are the student leads this year and the entire leadership team, which, you know, it's, it's been a great year. I, I kind of keep saying it's a, it's a challenge for, I mean, for everyone they're having that to rethink. On the Kager side, you know, that Kager, obviously, there's so much more time and effort put into building a company and, and the concepts around it. Um, it really grew out of, out of the challenges that we were having at the time with the data ma management and the work that we wanted to do analytically with understanding our customers and ticketing and retail and kind of recognizing very early on the challenges we were facing in one part of the business. So like marketing and getting the data out of systems, we were just as challenged with that on the ticketing side and on the retail side and with stadium operations and that we could use tools and technology to create a platform. So Kager, there's really two main parts to what our business is. The first is that we're a technology platform and that is effectively a data warehouse where we're integrating all the marketing and business operating systems and integrating analytics and then providing tools on top, which are data visualizations to drive those insights to, to grow the business. And we work with many of the thought leaders in sports today on their platform. The NFL is a significant client. We've built an industry first integrated ticketing platform that the that is uh, that all the teams in the league use hbsc which is the six Oilers and the devils are a major client sacramento kings mississippi state obviously uh craft sports and entertainment and then the other part of our business is our consulting and and i guess i'll call it application of data to drive impact and there's really that actually when we originally spun out kager about five years ago, we didn't have that part of the business, but we quickly learned that we needed to help 
move organizations through this um, through this process of understanding analytics. And so there's kind of three main parts to what we do there. Tech and analytics, obviously, business and market evaluation, and then really that understanding the customer and driving retention, engagement, and acquisition. And we've worked with everyone from Ticketmaster to On Location to Amazon in that space. And you know the work is very data-driven, as you might imagine, and is, is forward-thinking, but it's all, they're, it's all very related. But you know, the, while we officially spun out five years ago, the concept of what we were challenged with and what we were building, I mean, had been, you know, 13 plus years in the making. And, you know, I give so much credit to the crafts for, you know, recognizing that when this concept to build it um, and that it was going to be a big investment to do that, there was a broader opportunity. And, you know, that's one of the fun parts of working for such successful business people who are innovative and who are entrepreneurial and, you know, frankly, like empower their executives to think differently. But what I'm, what I'm thinking about is, so 15 years ago was the beginning of SSAC and then Kager is how old now, did you say? Officially five years in okay. May. Right. But so, so let, let's start with the first example, going back 15 years. That, so 2006, that was pre-smartphone. It was pre connected Pre well, Facebook was 2004, technically, but oh, you know, right. basically social media was just starting to get big, but there was no right. smartphone. That was the, obviously a really big game changer. There was no streaming media. Um, there was no connected TV. There was no uh, smart speakers and whole, uh, you know, audio, digital audio business, uh, kind of what we know today. So it's interesting to think about how you had to evolve both of those businesses, particularly Kager, as we saw the proliferation of digital devices explode beyond any everybody's wildest imaginations. And what's interesting to me, and I want to would love to know how you address this both as a platform and as a consultant, is how do you address all these different environments, many of which are quote off platform, meaning third party like big tech. If you're doing business with Facebook, they technically own all the data. You get your analytics, but I think you know what I'm asking. Yep. So much, you're, like sports is so reliant on that third, those third party platforms for much of its media data, at least. How do you yeah, There's really two parts to this. So first and foremost, a lot of where we are focused is the primary data, the actual data that an organization owns. A lot of time is spent thinking about the third party but people don't know their own customers and the details about what is actually happening within their business. And there is so much valuable information in terms of what is, what is potentially happening and what adjustments you, you might need to make in order to, um, in order to be able to just do business. I'll give you an example. Let's take the concept of tenure. So if you wanna have a loyalty program for your season ticket members, for example. And that dates back to 1980. I'm making up a date. If those records as that who the season ticket member is haven't been captured that when they joined, it's very challenging to give gifts for long the longest tenure. 
or if the data coming in, if you have specific issues. So for example, let's say there's a wait list. And when someone moves from being on the wait list to being a season ticket member, you don't note that shift and they keep when they join the wait list as their tenure date, then, I mean, there's real, there's real data potential challenges there. I mean, that's not like the biggest issue, but it, it's an example of an issue. But organizations want and need to have that kind of insight of, of information in order to provide the right product and make sure that the customer feels good about their experience for what they're being recognized for. And so that primary data, like I laugh when I think about people, people talk about retention and acquisition, but they think about it holistically. They're not going and saying, okay, but what was it, you know, by level? What was it by tenure? What was it, um, you know, for, for a different type of customer, different types of customers that you might have. And that's the depth of information that we need to get to, to understand, to create specific, more personalized products, which you're right, really didn't start until 2007 and eight. Cause I can remember us just uploading a list of emails that wasn't connected back to a customer to get communication out. And it wasn't personalized. And we are obviously at a state today and increasingly about personalization. So, would, so would, an example, would, would an example be a proprietary application like the Patriots mobile application, which they didn't have a long time ago, but now is a huge data driver, I assume, uh, in it, terms of insights into fan behavior and interests and stuff? It's a huge piece of information, but I mean, even the fact, for example, that mobile ticketing is, Three years ago, you would know one of maybe three or four people who were coming into your building, the person who bought the ticket. Now, as the proliferation of mobile ticket, mobile ticketing is happening, and especially because of COVID, people will have had the ticket forwarded to their phone, and they will be able to be attached specifically to a ticket. I mean, we there, I would say probably. A year and a half ago, you probably had a 30 to 40% acceptance rate in, in some leagues that had more older fans. It may have been higher in the NBA, which tended to, to have a little bit younger fans or different type of fan. But it's going to be probably close to 100%, which is just a boon of information. But to your question about social, I mean, it's, it's a, you're so right that not just Facebook, Amazon, uh, Google, they are capturing so much information and insights about fans and about customers and then using it to market, obviously. And um, so the main thing is how do teams identify and use the, the marketing and branding that they kind of now have to pay for on those sites to capture and understand their customers. And that's really a big, a big focus. And that might be sweepstakes or that might be specific offers that are, are in promotions that, are, that, are, that you're trying to do. But even in the context of like the, what's happened with Facebook over the past 10 years, um, they've made it more and more difficult because teams used to have their own site where they, within Facebook where they had more control and Facebook changed the rules. And so this, you know, I like to think about data as an asset. And I will say that is a Michael, Michael Dell is the one who I first heard that from. But that is really true. And who owns the data? And we can get into this in a, in a little bit on the NFTs, because that's an example of it, of who owns that data. That is going to be an increasingly critical and significant focus for all organizations, because owning that data, that's the new currency. It really right. just is. And, and the irony is that for many decades, 
leagues and teams owned very little data about these incredibly loyal fans. And it was basically season ticket holder lists or eventually email lists, et cetera. Um, and, and what, on the contrary, these tech behemoths have been built on, the, on the, the, that very principle of the more data we can collect, the better, the more we can monetize, the wealthier we become, which feeds upon itself. And it's interesting now sports is, seems, and I'd love your opinion on this, yeah. seems like it's kind of finally been um, provoked enough on this issue to say, we got to step up and figure out better ways of doing this. There's just way too much value going to these third parties and we got to do a better job ourselves on the, on the own platforms and first, and, and first party stuff. What I would say is that I, I, it's happening in pockets. There are some leagues and teams that are more progressive. Um, and this is professional sports that I'm speaking about because I'm not talking about college sports at this point in time, which is significantly behind for a whole host of challenges and reasons for why that is. But even in professional sports, you look at the NBA, which is probably the most forward from the team perspective, not necessarily at the league, but from the team perspective with that primary data collection, because they had more games and they had to sell. Not that major, major league baseball is a very interesting example because what they elected to do was create a centralized uh, group uh, 15, 20 years ago, which then obviously was sold to Disney, Bamtech. But what, by doing that, Many major league baseball teams have lost this, I'll just call it muscle of engaging their fans directly and communicating to them. And it's, it is very fascinating to see the challenges that baseball is having on the field with that regard. And also there's some of that obviously on the, on the business side. And I think as you're, as we're looking at your, your, what you're saying, uh, Tom, I guess I kind of disagree with the professional sports is accelerating now more than ever. Mm -hmm. It is, I think people thought data was like important and understanding the customer was important. It's imperative now because who the customer is or was is changing. If you look at what happened at the Australian open, that all those tickets didn't sell. If you looked at what happened when the Nets just welcome or the Knicks yesterday, bringing fans back and those tickets with only 10% capacity, not selling at a premium is very interesting about what is what is happening with fans and potentially telling for sports and music by the way about the challenges that are are lie ahead coming out of this pandemic because it really is a new likely a new fan that's going to need to be identified to sell out games and events so i had this conversation this week um, with a reporter talking about this exact topic about uh, March Madness. And he's like, will people go, will people watch? And I brought up a, a topic that I had read about this summer, which actually tied back to, of all things, newspaper strikes. And the last newspaper strike in New York was in, I think, 1984, but they had a rule called the 28-day rule. And what they re the unions realized was, if someone doesn't do something within 28 days, it breaks their habit and they go and find something else. Mm. I think that it seems like the dirty little secret is that sports has always been recession proof, whatever it is, but people will always come. I, I think in the last year, people have found other things to do with their time and they have less money. 
So now does the question become for you, and this is really the research that you guys have been doing about return to play. Um, have teams actually paused and looked forward and say, crap, we got to readjust what we're doing because the fans and the data is more important for us, especially since we haven't had it in the last year? Or do you think still people are hoping, you know, kind of sticking their head in the ground and saying, we're going to go back to where we were last March 7th? Well, I'll start by saying I don't, I don't think kind of what you were saying that it is um, the demand won't be there. The interest won't be there. It is as we looked at doing the, for Kager, the future of live events and sports to basically understand fan demand as fans were able to start going back to games is very much focused on what it, what are the challenges in that particular market, which is super important. And that's based on the regulations that are in place. It's based on what's happening with the COVID infection rate. It's based with general consumer behaviors. So I don't, you can't take a holistic approach because the biggest learning, you know, that we have had is how unique it is across. We're, we're looking at 32 markets every, every week to see what those changes are. So the, to answer your question, I think what's going to happen, at least in the short term, the most important thing is teams are doing an incredible job of updating their processes. They're thinking about gate entry. They're, they, the num, like basically every event will be cashless now, which basically was pushed forward massively, obviously, out of necessity. Mobile ticketing, as we as we discussed, is going to be critical. There's going to be new data too, obviously, in a significant way. But the so the the teams and the leagues, that communication of what they have done and personalizing that for the different customer who might have concerns. So uh, an older an older customer is likely going to need a different type of a communication than someone who is younger, who is potentially less at risk of the severity of, um, of COVID. But I'd also say we're, we're not out of the woods with respect to the pandemic. Right. We, there is certainly reason for optimism. I think the last two weeks is giving all of us a lot of optimism when we're seeing the impact of the vaccine in Israel and having an at scale uh, like validation that it's 94% effective. And that if people happen to get COVID after they've had the vaccine, the consequences of it being very serious are very small. And so I think as people gain comfort with the vaccines, as people continue to wear masks, as teams and leagues and venues communicate, I mean, filtration systems that have been changed, efforts they're taking to ensure safety, cleanliness and sanitation that's happening in the venues. People don't know those things. If you think back to the early days of the pandemic, when you would go to a grocery store, it was chaos because there was no process. You could walk any, down any aisle. And then if you've gone more recently, they have times for the elderly. You can't go down certain aisles. I think there's processes that have been created. And I think as people start to go back to games and they see all of these efforts that industry leaders, they, they want people to come back to games too. They want to make it a great experience. They're, they're all experiencing the pandemic, the sports executives. 
that that the fans are too. Their kids have maybe not been in school. Like everything, everyone is experiencing it. And that focus on safety is really paramount, which is why I think the reception to our future of live events and sports has been so significant. We, when we set out to do this last April, and I want to, I want to like specify that our focus was return of fans, not return to play. And that's very different. And the index that we created is to help provide perspective at a macro level across the United States. Cause you have to remember we are in Boston, you guys are in New York. Well, Joe, you're in DC, but like very impacted in different ways than the middle of the country or the South and thinking or thought, Hey, you know what? We're experiencing it really badly here in the Northeast, but it's going to start to affect the other parts of, of the country too. And we want to be able to share learnings and, I want to emphasize because this is really maybe gives some confidence to, to fans or I mean, we're, anyone who works in, in the industry, they're fans too, right? That the number of teams who have reached out to us and offered to share their insights or share surveys they've done, we've partnered with many uh, companies too, everyone from Ninth Decimal to Ticketmaster to Zoom, where they're sharing their data to help us as an industry come back in the best possible way. Like that's, that's to me, very impactful and moving. And I'm really proud of the work that our Kager team has done. And, and, and then by the way, we've in a, in an unexpected way, been able to take this information and help our clients too, on a very specific basis, which wasn't really our focus at the start, but is a great byproduct. Can we go back to a, uh, an acronym from earlier, NFT, non-fungible yeah. token. We got to talk a little bit about blockchain because it's such a hot subject in the business. But I want to relate it back to what Jessica has been talking about with data collection for teams. So the other day, Sport Radar held an event called SR Connect, and there was a, their inaugural event. And I attended because the featured speaker uh, interviewee was Ted Leonsis. And uh, as Joe knows, when Ted talks, we listen. And... Um, You've, you probably know his um, his perspective, Jessica, from following the business so closely, and I assume you probably know him. He's often talked about teams as a service instead of SaaS, software as a service. He's talked as teams as a service. But mm. So no surprise, during the interview, the subject of NBA Top Shot, the, the blockchain-based collectible that is red hot right now, came up, and he was very bullish, and that didn't surprise me. But he extended that idea of blockchain-based technology solutions to ticketing. Yes. Which I'm sure you've heard some experts in the business talk about. So can we talk about that? Because it goes back to your, the point about how the data is actually a kind of claimed, or I don't know if it's, if it's a legal issue or just a technical issue, um, in the um, world of a, of a blockchain environment. In other words, I understand a mobile ticketing, if the Patriots do mobile ticketing, you got 100% of the data, you're good, you can analyze it any way you want. But in the blockchain, can you explain how that might work? Sure. So let me start with what I think was the first step that the NFL has undertaken, which was the creation of the open distribution concept where a ticket there through the platform that we have built for them, we're able to track a ticket from starting at a team to 
if it's transferred, if it's then goes to the secondary and looking at the kind of path. And that's really good information and valuable information to understand the customers and, um, and the value of, of, of the ticket and, and help again for teams to have the right communication. We know that, and there isn't an issue with tickets being sold on the secondary. By its very nature, tickets have uh, value changes on a frequent basis coming into a game because the opponent, are, when, when the seasons are set, you don't necessarily know how valuable that game might be, right? And so that's not the issue. The issue is the people coming to the games, the teams want to be able to communicate to them about where they should be coming for the games and about their experience. So being able to track who actually has the ticket again is very important for the overall experience at the game. But also, I, I know for a fact that several teams have taken the makeup that is coming for a particular game, which might change very significantly, and adjusted their entertainment in-game based mm -hmm. on who's attending the game. So that's the, it isn't this like, bad thing it's a good thing to help again teams and leagues understand who their fans are so that they're marketing and communicating in the best way possible and so the concept of blockchain is effectively what happens today is the ticket moves and it isn't necessarily as trackable as it otherwise might be if it was a blockchain ticket meaning that it was a token that was basically um that was basically, I guess you, I don't know if it's traded, but sold. Mm -hmm. And so rather than it just being transfers, that doesn't mean you can't transfer it, but I think that's the concept behind blockchain as a ticket. And I mean, listen, it is a, it, it's funny because it's a digital asset that has, unlike maybe unlike NFTs in some ways or NBA Top Shot, you actually have an experience at the end of it and which is to come to the game. And that is, is actually when we get back to, and hopefully it's in the next you know, five months or so, back to having those experiences again, we are in the experiential economy. That's what this time is. People wanna have experiences together. That's the memories. And I think we're honestly very much being pushed by Gen Z who has this significant focus on congregating together and to have the pandemic strike when it when it has, when I think this experiential economy was really gaining steam was very is very interesting. But with respect to 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 NFTs in general, it's obviously not only happening in sports. I think I mean it's I think it started more in like art, but to see this digital asset of of a play be something that people are trading as a collectible is super interesting. And it's easy to see that that could, why that probably started in, or is something that is a big focus for the music industry. Mm -hmm. And what I'm trying to kind of get my head around with it is if you look at music and musicians wanting to own and have the IP that they, they own um, and, and not being necessarily for other folks, what does that do to broad awareness of music if it isn't as easily distributed. And I think like at one point in time, you had to buy, well, for us, we know you had to buy a digital song and now it's just streaming. So there is like a really interesting question as people own this 
digital asset of a, of a play, at what point in time could it potentially be something that's sold to a streaming group that is then readily available for other purposes? I don't have an answer to that, but I just, I was, mm-hmm. I've been thinking about it. But I think it's very hot right now. I think the, the jump in the last two weeks for NBA Top Shot is I'm a little worried about, I hope it's not a bubble. I don't know. What do you guys think? Potentially I mean, a bubble. A little game stoppy, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Could we say? Um, I but don't know. I mean, you know, I, 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 um, I just talked about it in my class the other day, and I just happened to, um, uh, thanks to Joe, I was connected with Jabari Young from CNBC to do a. To, he's doing a story on it. I, I got to talk to him about this for a while. So in pre- preparation for the interview, I did a lot of research, and I've already known about it. And it just so happened that the day I talked to Jabari, which I think was a few days ago, I watched TED who had just been proactively bringing it up. No one asked him about it. He brought it up. And, um, you know, so in, in my research, you've probably seen some of the quotes from Mark Cuban on yes. this. Certainly Ted has been vocal about it, but Mark has been, been out there with it. And he just says, look, we're looking at the laws of supply and demand. One of our students very, uh, you know, kind of innocently said, well, I don't see why you'd want to pay for this because you could just go to Instagram or YouTube and see the highlight. And I said, okay, well, you can go to Google Images and type, type out pictures of LeBron as a rookie, print it out and think it's worth money, but it's not worth, it's not worth money. But him so, somehow one pressing of a card back in 2000, whatever, three, uh, that's worth a lot of money right now. So it's, it's really about scarcity. And the, and the point I brought up to the class, which I think is really interesting to think about is like in the world of digital, we don't usually think about or worry about scarcity. We right. think about plentitude and abundance and you know, virtually, um, endless uh, replicability of everything. So when you bring in the idea of scarcity into this, it does create a market. So Absolutely. whether it's tulips in Holland or crypto kitties or right. beanie babies, it's supply and demand as Mark Cuban said. And, that, and that's, that's the way I think of it. And I think it will have these uh, booms and busts in terms of specific you know, timeframes and things like that. And, and I suspect things will calm down. But I know that when I went on to Top Shot when this was getting hot and I looked to buy some packs, they were all sold out. So you could still go in and buy moments, but the pricing on the moments, the, the discrete elements, were all over the place. Some were you know, $30, some were $3,000, some were $100,000. I mean, it, it almost doesn't make any sense when you go in there without having thought through some of these issues beforehand. Anyway, Joe, I don't know what you think about it, how yeah. closely you've checked it out. I, mean, I think you look at a lot of things in the supply and demand world that we're in and now, if somebody would have told you that suddenly Pokemon cards are going to be hot again, which they are, and that's a, a tactile thing that you have in your hand, or even, I mean, you look at the trading card business or the sneaker business, um, you know, it, it's, it's something that captures an imagination. Uh, it has an audience. It builds on itself. And then you have the drivers. And those drivers are people somewhere in this world, on this planet, not on Mars, but on this planet, that think this is important and suddenly you have a marketplace that's being driven because of the story of what it is. I think, you know, and you've looked at the esports space where skins have been sold for years and, and mm-hmm. there's been digital currency for years. I was trying to tell somebody this morning about Farmville and it was someone a little bit younger than me and they had no idea what Farmville was, which kind of scared me. But, um, <laughs> but when you think of those type of things and especially the casual gaming market and, and how, you know, a mobile device will help us continue to, to grow our awareness of things. 
that's really an interesting thing because you're in a lot of places you're talking about micro payments, which people are saying, okay, maybe I'll buy that and see where it goes. Right. And I, I actually, I think the collectible stuff, we actually do have a panel on this at Sloan this year, um, which I think will be great with Alexis Ohanian, who is big into this space. Oh, wow. So that, that's great. So yeah. that'll be, so that'll be very interesting. Um, but this concept of what you alluded to Joe with skins, the, the, the similar concept of rather than it being a collectible that's owned, being something that you could buy on your social to as a GIF or whatever it might be, that there's kind of two ways to cut how you want to approach it. And I'm very intrigued to say to see which one wins out. Yeah. Because I don't have an answer, but I do think it could be this collectible route, which maybe there's both, by the way, but for like a some someone younger, I mean, as I'm not, I don't do esports. Um, also, I did not play Nintendo. So just to say, I think it's more that I'm just not into um, that type of gaming. But but the perspective of showing who you are and doing that in a lot of different ways and the ability to do it, I do think people will pay for those things. And I do think it could be, um, I mean, the, this concept of, of Giffy's and um, I think is very, is very interesting for how people are expressing themselves. And I do think people will start to pay for them. And yeah, I think, I think the influence, I mean, Joe, we've talked about the, the idea of sports, mainstream sports being influenced by some of the business activities in gaming, uh, including Twitch. The idea, as Jessica said, of micropayments, skins, but essentially a whole new, what I call alternative commercial element that really hasn't even been addressed in the sports right. business yeah. uh, for, for obvious reasons, because it's just the, the, not the same environment. But to the extent young people, Jessica, start expecting these kinds of experiences with the other other endeavors in entertainment maybe sports needs to accelerate that too well we've been talking about the the engagement and joe this is from a point earlier but the other big driver that's gonna bring demand back to venues is going to be this uh increase in gambling in venue that'll likely start this year so in 2021 so right now there's 21 states that you're able to take bets, um, not all of them, you know, in person, some of them are just mobile. There's six more that are pending for this year. And then there's like a potentially an additional 14 over the next two years. That from an acceleration of engagement for fans yeah. and for in-venue experience, it's going to significantly and powerfully, I think, improve how people consume games in different ways. But if you think of, if you take it one step further along the lines of what we're talking about, is there potentially going to be some type of a market for, was that, is that play from a gambling perspective, could that play be something that now is part of NFTs in the future? Yeah. I mean, why not? If you can instantly say you want that, I mean, that's really powerful, especially if this, market continues to accelerate and time to making the ask comes to be just a thought. Yeah. And I think when you tie to community and, and I really think because people haven't been able to physically go to events that, that the aspect of building your own community and the NFL did a great job with Twitch this year on Thursday night football and build and seeing how those communities grow. If you're in your own micro community with your friends talking about whatever it is that you're talking about, a movie, sporting event, um, snowstorm, whatever it is, and you're able to share something or people you can trade back and forth, 
that's incredibly valuable because th there's a passion there that ties everybody together. And I think we underplay that in sports sometimes because we think everybody rushes in, everybody watches on TV, when in reality, we're becoming more and more of a community of a group together that wants to work just with our, our fans and know what the five of us want to talk about versus the 50,000 other people who may not have anything in common with us. I think that's that's really going to factor in as people go back. And oh, by the way, and the last, last thing uh, on this is getting rid of the latency and everything that your partners like Verizon are doing with 5G. Mm -hmm. When people go back and they, you, know, you sit at MetLife Stadium and you can't get a signal and now you go back and not only are you getting a signal, but you're watching highlights, I think that's going to be one of those blow away experiences that bring people back to yeah, I agree with you. The 5G investment that is happening right now, again, we've been talking about what, what organizations and owners and leagues and teams are doing to accelerate and improve during this time away, that the Wi-Fi and the 5G, and I do think it's going to be very interesting because many organizations are making that 5G investment, and we're going to have a period of time, I think, where you're going to have those two competing um, platforms, the Wi-Fi and the 5G, because not everyone has a 5G phone, of course, yeah. and uh, and the maintenance of both of those is you know could be significant. So uh, it's I agree it's going to be I'm pretty excited for how different the experience could be. To be honest, yep. I just want to go. <laughs> okay, what it we'll is? Take, we'll take anything we can get. So just just open open the arenas and stadiums, and we'll be there. Tom, you have another one or another number two before we get to Jessica? I'll just ask one more quick one because I know we want to sure. wrap up in a few minutes and we end, end, we'll end with our standard questions, which you're aware of. But sure. uh, Jessica, talk a little bit about the what's happening at the team level in terms of staffing because it, it, it feels mm. as though the industry is ahead. The, the, the technology and the interest mm. in analytics is kind of ahead of the ability to essentially handle it from a personnel and staffing standpoint, not, not everywhere, but in many cases. So for example, everybody in all parts of the sports business has access to these kinds of uh, data troves, but not everybody has the capacity to bring it up to the next level from the collection of the data to the insights as you discussed before. Do, do you feel like um, there's the requisite level of interest in hiring and expansion in these areas of these organizations at this point? I think it's a, I mean, the question is spot on. I think we have a business because there is interest and also because organizations don't necessarily know what they need. And there is a very significant difference in the definition of analytics. And I think if owners, they hear the buzzwords, we need an analytics group, we need a strategy group, the investments of what they need and what they need to hire and the tools that they, that they need are not necessarily that clear. And um, that's kind of where we come in to try and help folks with, you know, we're, we're providing the foundational underpinnings to help organizations accelerate very quickly. And then the types of folks that they're hiring, they don't need to necessarily be data scientists, right? They need to be people who can see the data and interpret it for what that means in terms of communication changes and understanding how their product is changing. And I guess I would just say is the so what, but I think what happens is people are investing at a level where they potentially don't need to because they can leverage the capabilities that are out there. So I think increasingly, and again, it depends on the league because leagues that have 
had more recent ownership changes, the people who are coming in as owners often understand the importance of, of technology and may have some experience in other parts of their business experience with this function. And they also understand that it doesn't make much sense to build it from the ground up and they want to leverage um, you know, some, some of the stuff that's kind of expertise. Where it gets trickier is organizations that haven't had a, have an influx of um, kind of the what is happening in business today. Because for a long time, sports has been about creating that awesome in-game experience, right? And having ads. And it's just, it's evolving. And as I said, as a result of the pandemic and as a result of the increasing data that is available, it is imperative to have a handle on this situation and, and to have the systems in place. Uh, and then yes, of course you have to have people, but I think making sure you have the right people is really critical. And I think if not handled the, the right way, you could invest in something that doesn't have impact. And that's kind of the worst when you spend time and energy, a lot of time and energy on technology and it's not actually driving the business forward. And then you got to redo it two years later. So actually, I'm going to ask these two backwards. These are the last two questions we sure. ask. Um, because one of them you just kind of alluded to, but um, what advice do you give to people, not just coming into an industry, but evolving their careers or changing their careers? We've got a lot of people that are changing careers. And then the other thing is with all the things that you guys touch on, how do you stay constant uh, and up to, up to date with everything that's going on so that you're advising your clients correctly? I mean, on your first question about coming into the industry or evolving your industry, one of the best parts is that you can actually learn a lot where you are. And I think from my perspective, I want to see people who, if they say they want to get into analytics, have applied it in some form or fashion to what they're doing today. So if you're in school, again, it's potentially going to volunteer for the basketball team at your school. We actually just hired someone who um, was uh, was doing that at, at UMichigan. And that shows that you're taking advantage of the opportunities and not only learning the theoretical in school, but applying it tactically and gaining experience because we all know how important that is. If you're looking to change, I mean, I will say this, I, I did not know really much about technology at all in a meaningful way 20 years ago. Um, I have effectively, I love, have always loved data and always loved statistics, but the concept of application and um, more advanced data science is something that I've had to learn. And by the way, I'm not a data scientist by any stretch of the imagination, which everyone in Kager will tell you. Um, but, but I think having and showing interest and, 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 and that can be done in a lot of different ways. How you might do that is super important. And I want to, I want to hear how you're thinking about applying that to different parts of of, um, of your career. So that's the, the recommendation. Oh, the last thing I would say is a great piece of advice that I got once is that there's uh, three things that you think about in, in your career, or not in your career, but in a job. The location, the function, and the industry. Hmm. And so if you're in sports, great. You, you're already in the, in, in the industry, so you can take that one down. If you're in um, a function that you don't like and you want to change functions, then you have to try and get some of that experience in that function in order to 
move over and up into that function. And then generally location, you know, depending on what's important to you is kind of the last. But I think it's like put a spike down on where you have a skill set that is applicable that you can bring to bear if you want to move into sports or change roles within, within the industry. On staying current, well, you know, I'm really lucky because first we have at Kager a very active Slack channel. So we have a what we're reading kind of a Slack. So there's a lot of activity there. So I certainly pick up a lot of great insights from, from the Kager team. And then with the Sloan conference, I mean, just the planning of the conference and the folks that we're talking about and hearing what is happening in the industry, talking with our sponsors and coming up with the content is super powerful to, to just get educated uh, in addition to kind of what's happening in a, on my day-to-day basis. I listen to a lot of podcasts, less so now because I'm not commuting as much. I'm only going into the office a few days a week. Um, those tend to be less sports-oriented, more business-oriented. So like How I Built This, um, Masters of Scale. I love all the Adam Grant work-life balance type stuff. I've just really interestingly enough started listening to Cusp quite a bit and I love it. So yeah, I mean, I think it's important. I read a lot and I love what Sports Business Journal does. Obviously, I think Sportico coming in this year has been really powerful as a new source of information. Wall Street Journal seems to have doubled down recently in the past really six months to a year on their sports coverage. There's a lot of great sources out there for sure. Cool. How did people find it? Oh yeah, wait, wait, yeah, it's true. About the Sloan Conference? Yeah, so the conference is April 8th and 9th. And we are going to be having live panels, so I can't promise you what Daryl will say, but I'm sure it'll be good. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, we, we've had a lot of fun and thinking creatively about how to engage uh, people. And we're really trying to bring, because we are a student-run conference, we're trying to bring innovation from the student's perspective to what we're doing. So, you know, having um, very active chats, doing some uh, polling and promotions and sweepstakes during the conference, we are doing like a full day slate, but we're, we're very excited about that. We also have a bunch of interactive events that we normally have in person. We're having uh, virtually a hackathon, Major League Baseball is sponsoring, DraftKings is sponsoring their innovation competition again. We're actually having two workout sessions to start the day virtually too. Uh, so, you know, we're going to have a lot of fun. We've really amped up the networking opportunities as well. And I think the last thing I want to know is that we, we have created a couple of fellowships and mentorship programs this year in conjunction with Wasserman designed F towards women and minorities. Great. This is a really important focus for us to increase the, the awareness and opportunities uh, at Sloan. And so I want to encourage people to obviously go and sign up for that. But we're, we, uh, we're going to have a ton of fun. It's, uh, we got some incredible speakers I've mentioned a few of them, but many, many favorites from the past, including uh, Michael Lewis, Mark Cuban, Alexis Ohanian, um, and then a bunch of new ones like J.G. Watt. <laughs> so cool. it'll be really good. And I think the content that we're covering, it's, it's a very heavy focus on how the pandemic has impacted sports and where we're going into the future, both on the team side and on the and on the business side, so it's going to be great and uh, and it's virtual, so you can you know sign up probably up until the last week. 
We did an event uh, a few weeks ago for NYBC Sports that featured Rich Greenfield, who uh, is always great to listen to. And he, he made a great line. It was during, I guess, CES, and it was virtual. And he said, I think a co John Kozner was interviewing him. And he said, you know, the thing I miss, he said, I, I wish we were together in Vegas, but the thing I miss most about these live conferences is the serendipity of running into and meeting people. And I just thought that was a great way to, to describe mm -hmm. it. Like the serendipity of just having random connections uh, with friends and acquaintances and colleagues. Uh, we miss it terribly, but we'll, we'll be back soon. We're tr yeah, we're trying to do that with the interactive events and <clears throat> we have a ton of career related activities going on a women's luncheon, so. All right, well, Jessica, thanks so much again. Thanks to Ben and Taylor for producing. Joe, thank you for another good conversation. We're on quite a roll uh, in our 20, 21 podcast uh, slate so far uh, this, this season has been uh, wonderful. So everybody, we've been listening to one of the industry luminaries, Jessica Gelman, who is the co-founder and co-chair of the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, which we've been talking about. But more importantly, she's the CEO of one of the most innovative companies in the business, the Kraft Analytics Group. Or now that you know how it's, you should, if you want to be cool, refer to Kager. She's the CEO <laughs> of Kager. So that's what you can say to your friends when you, they ask you who's on. But that's really, um, that, that's really helpful, your perspective on probably one of the most important talks in the business, so thank you. Thank you so much for having me, it was a pleasure. Joe, maybe we should rename the show. Tom, Joe and Tom's excellent podcasting adventure. <laughs> okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.